This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street Grips. On today's show, we're going to look back at the Austrian Grand Prix from the Red Bull Ring. Steve English, Adam Wheeler, David Emmett and Neil Morrison on the show and... Ad, this was a weekend where MotoGP had it all, really, and uh, the the closing stages of that race was something special. But what about for you? How was the how was the weekend, and what was your big moment of the weekend? Uh, a crazy weekend, Steve. I'm not a great fan of um, MotoGP back to backs uh, purely because you know, for us, like everybody else working in the paddock, they start on a Thursday and go all the way to the early hours of a Sunday night, so it can be pretty relentless. But for me. Uh, the way that the double uh, Red Bull Ring finished, um, you know, I mean, what a show. Uh, Brad Binder sort of, for me, running off on the last corner, you think, you know, there's that moment of panic where you wonder, you know, open the gas and the thing's going to spit him off or whatever. Is there going to be some, you know, last great big grandstand moment in in the, the closing seconds of this Grand Prix? But somehow race direction managed to impose their authority with the uh, the three second um, penalty and then rescinded it again again you know maybe, um you know i think if binder had been deducted that position or that win then it would have been outrageous so um some common sense or uh you know prevailed i think but yeah that final lap from binder and the moments when he ran off the track no brakes no real grip uh it was it was fantastic yeah, common sense prevailed. There's not much common sense on the Paddock Pass podcast. Neil, I'm sure for you, there was no common sense in Austria. We saw during the weekend, you were talking on the Paddock Note show about going out into the streets and uh, and, and blowing. So I don't know what was going on for you. But uh, what was your moment of the weekend other than Saturday night? Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty intense weekend, Steve. I can't really recommend covering five classes. Usually we cover three, but we were on Moto E duty as well. And then I had to step in and do some Red Bull Rookies uh, commentary, um, which... Re- required uh, a lot of last minute revision it was like being back at school but we got there in the end um, and the moment of the weekend I think for me was um, it was a great fight before I mean the, the, the rain arriving brought and even I added dimension of drama but before that it was a great fight with with uh, Bagnaia, Mark and Fabio and I think Fabio's heroics in the turn three and maybe the first time that he passed Martin and Marquez up there he did this crazy kind of two and one around the outside move it was just amazing. It was like uh, watching Jorge Lorenzo back in his 250 days. Poor Fuera um, showed just how strong Fabio was there. And um, yeah, I think we'll probably get on to it in the main show. But yeah, Fabio's performance was, I think, quite quite astonishing. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely put him in pole position, driving seat for the championship. So yeah. Yeah, once those few drops of rain fell, we really saw the confidence Fabio had compared to some of the other riders around him. Dave, what about you? What was your big moment of the weekend? Um, the, the sort of the last few laps were, I mean, they were fun. They were also hilarious to watch. Um, uh, what you really see, it's not often that you get a sense of just how fast, uh, the riders are, just how fast the bikes are. Um, and especially like the difference between the tires and seeing suddenly, uh, Paco Bagnaia and Jorge Martin just slice through that group with Espargaro and Lecoona, um, Banya and Martin on wets, the others on slicks. You really saw how much more performance there is. I mean, they, you suddenly saw that these just, you know, top level racers on the slicks uh, they were made to look like club racers because they were wobbling around and, uh, you know, Banya and Martin were just so, so fast around there. And it was, it was a really great visual I- illustration of exactly what, um, uh, you know, wet rain tyres, the Michelin's rain rain tyres are capable of and the difference they make. Yeah, Peko, 15 seconds a lap faster at the end of the race, but obviously just ran out of laps. I think for me, my moment of the weekend was probably seeing Maverick Vinales on the sidelines. Obviously, this was one of the big talking points all the way through the weekend, but to see him up at turn three, watching on in his Yamaha gear, suspended by the team, it was just, it was a great image of everything that's gone wrong between Yamaha and Vinales. And uh, obviously then the news in the aftermath of Austria, that Vinales has confirmed that he's left Yamaha, he's gone to Aprilia. I think he was one of the big topics all the way through the weekend. We're obviously going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But I think, Neil, there's only one man we can really start with this weekend. 
There is, Steve, yeah. I mean, uh, Brad Binder's heroics at the end of, of the race were just uh, quite astonishing. Um, and almost two men, uh, the rest of the field, were just kind of in awe of what he did. Um, he even got a compliment out of Davide Tardozzi, which is something in itself, uh, saying that uh, he had two big balls for what he did. And I think for the... Uh, but they pitted on lap 25, so there was like three or four laps where he was out on slick tires. You, you, at first you thought, okay, it, he's done it perfectly well because he's not losing so much time, but it was only the final two laps where it got so, so hairy. Um, Brad was saying that he wasn't just riding on slicks. Um, his uh, his brakes had cooled down to the extent that he basically didn't have any front brake left. He was just having to enter corners using the rear brake. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of astonishing bravery, kind of mad pretty mad what he was doing um and uh oh, it was just it was great I, I think i've gone back and rewatched the the final five six laps of the race about three or four times since the actual event on sunday it was just astonishing to see um and uh you know binder has been really good at certain times this year but that was a just a brilliant sort of um throw it all in the line um gamble and uh, well, it paid off massively. Yeah, I said it on the note show. I think, you know, it shows the the depth of feeling that these guys have, um, you know, in all kinds of conditions and, you know, how their motorcycles obviously are changing. I mean, things like uh, fans might not necessarily think about such as, you know, a full fuel tank to an empty fuel tank. Um, you know, the bikes are constantly uh, changing in their behavior and their characteristics through, you know, 25, 28 lap Grand Prix. Um, you know, the other thing was, you know, Binder also admitting he take it was taking a gamble. Um, that remarkable sight of I think four riders or five riders peeling into the, the pit lane uh, to you know make the most of the flag to flag regulation. And him, there was I think it's a great photograph where he's like looking at the rest of them, just going by saying, you know, I'm going to take the gamble. Um, you know, and full full credit to him for doing that because it was, uh, you know, I don't think he could have imagined how it would have been come the last lap. And it, again, it shows that this technology functions amazingly well but then when the conditions change to such a degree something like carbon carbon brake discs and and equipment can just you know completely you know erode to a different parameter of, of performance yeah i mean what happens is i mean the, the carbon brakes have to have a particular temperature to work and normally they work in the rain as well they use them in the rain as well but they have covers over them to keep the rain off to stop them from cooling down that doesn't happen so what does brad binder does i mean if you or i arrived at a corner and realized that our front brakes weren't working uh, there would be a certain amount of um uh, uh fouling of um of underwear and uh, and just blind panic but what does Brad Binder do? He figures out, okay, right, no front brake. How do we stop the bike? We use the rear brake. We use the rear brake. Um, you know, we use the gears. Uh, we use the engine to slow the bike down. It's just finding a different way. The tires stop working as well because the rain sucked all of the heat out of the slick, so you've got lo a, a lot less grip. So you, I mean, you could hear it when he was just going along the uh, uh, the, the the straight. You can hear the bike sort of suddenly go uh, uh, as it revs up um, uh, uh, past the. Um, and the rear is sort of spinning up. It's just the ability to think on the fly and adjust on the fly um, is amazing. And I loved his comment about uh, uh, someone asked, yeah, can you practice this? He said, well, you, you can practice it, but it's a really good way to get into the hospital. Dave, can you just uh, repeat that engine noise again, please? <laughs> it went, ah! <laughs> I'd just like to say, you know, Dave said... Um Watching or sitting on a bike with no front brakes would cause the falling of underwear. I could say, with uh, with some authority, that even just watching a rider uh, on the bike with uh, no front brakes caused some falling of underwear from where I was sat in the press box. It's interesting that Binder sort of said it was um, it was kind of a calculated gamble in a, in, a, in a sense because Darren had obviously ridden the Moto Three race the week before um, on slick tires in on a wet track uh, that was drying, and Darren had told Brad that it was crazy grip even with slicks and wet so i think that played some part in him making that decision um but even still when you you realize how special his final two laps were when you watch the back the final lap and you look at espargaro lacuona rossi marini because they were all on slicks at the end just how slowly they were going um which you know allowed Bagnaia, martin and mir to catch them right at the end when you saw the kind of difference between brad and them you were like wow that is something and brad didn't have a reference in front of him all the others were kind of watching how the what the other person did but brad was just completely by himself so he didn't know how far to push um, so, yeah, to, to manage to stay on is just um, just quite remarkable. Um, yeah, fully deserved. 
I mean, the reason he went in was, or he didn't go into the pits, was because he felt he had nothing to lose. Uh, you know, he was having a shocking race. He said he didn't have any rear grip um, uh, up until that point. Um, he thought the thing was lost, and he just saw an opportunity. So that made the that made the calculation for staying out easier than for the others uh, who were all looking at each other and uh, you know thinking about what to do. He was playing no role in the championship, whereas you know Quattararo, Mir. Uh, they're all looking uh, uh, at each other, so it, all of these calculations are different for him. It was it it was you know very difficult. It, it was well, roll the dice, got nothing to lose. Yeah, you're right, Dave, because I mean there was it wasn't just some wild seat of the pants judgment at the last second. I mean he admitted that he was calculating how many how many seconds per lap he would lose by staying out on slicks. But then of course you can't legislate for which parts of the circuit are, are more are wetter than others, and how much more the rain's going to come down. Yeah, it's also one of those circumstances where obviously you make the decision based on where it is at that moment in time. And once Bender stayed out, he was pot committed. He couldn't pit at that stage. He'd already lost too much time probably if he then decided to pit. So it was one of those situations where by being brave at the very start of it, what, with five laps to go whenever it started to spit rain, everyone else pits. Binder's in it. He's he's got nothing to lose. At the end of the day, he's not fighting for a world championship. He's trying to win races, and it ended up just being the the perfect storm for him, really. And he rode tremendously at the end of the race. But Neil, for KTM, this is obviously a massive step forward. This is winning their home race with their factory team. Obviously, they won last year with Oliveira as well on the Tech Three bike. But uh, this was a this was a big statement from KTM as well. And this was a big couple of weeks for them. And even for, for you, they took an awful lot of the media out to see the factory. They made a big deal this week of trying to show just how big their operation is. Yeah, they did, yeah. Um, and it's really quite impressive when you see um, their factory and, and how they operate um, out in Madikofen, which is about two and a half hours uh, from Spielberg. Um, yeah, a couple of really interesting things that we saw there. There was the workshop, and it, that sort of just puts into into perspective the, the enormity of KTM's operation across all disciplines. You had one room with Moto3 and MotoGP bikes. You had uh, another section with um, the MXGP machines with the uh, Supercross machines being worked on. Then you went into another room. They had all the, the, the off-road bikes with uh, the Dakar setup, or Dakar bikes being set up. Um, just, uh, just the scale and the, the manpower that goes into preparing all of those machines, taking care of all those machines. Um, and then we had a great, uh, a great half hour, more or less, with uh, Wolfgang Faber, basically the guy that is um, in charge of their chassis development. He was showing us how they do the three D three D printing of the chassis and how, basically, um, from the moment Pit Bauer picks up the phone and calls the chassis department and says, "Lads." We need a new chassis, new frame, and it needs to be ready for next week. They think that they can pretty much have a new sh a new frame completely manufactured in three days. So that's sort of the the turnaround that KTM can muster, um, and that's one of the big advantages that we've seen them have maybe over their rivals in the past four or five years. Um, so yeah, remarkable, um, a remarkable setup, remarkable manpower, and just uh, this kind of willingness to react and work to and adapt to whatever situation is thrown at them um it basically shows you how they've managed to get as competitive as they are now uh, within such a short space of time yeah, i mean nil's on the money i mean the logistics are really important to ktm i mean I, I, like, I mean i've been there a couple of times and you have the main factory inside matikoff and then two kilometers down the road you have a giant sort of field of space and every time i go there it seems to expand with orange i mean that's where you have the wp H quarters, R&D and factory, you have the engine factory, you have um, a vast new building where alone, I think it's four floors for their marketing work across all the brands that they have. I mean, let's not forget in the last uh, Grand Prix of um, Ostrich, Dave, that, uh, you know, we had like a gas gas winner, um, Husqvarna were on pole position. I mean, so, you know, I think there were like over 70 bikes between like the Red Bull rookies and the Northern Talent Cup and everything on, on track over the weekend. So in this in this hub in Mundafing, it's called, um, you know, you have the race workshop as well, like Neil was describing. And it's uh, the whole operation is, is, is close together, is closely knit, um, you know, the communication is is kind of synchronized you know, for fast efficiency um it seems their management structure as well is uh quite streamlined um i mean neil's uh, description there of the frame is just an ideal example of how they can get things done quickly and of course like i think dave said numerous times in the past to be a success in racing to go quickly you also need to make shit happen quickly um and it's uh you know i think 
they now have five Grand Prix wins in MotoGP, so one for every year they've been on the grid, and that's a pretty impressive turnaround. Dave, I'm sure you said it more eloquently <laughs> than that. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I doubt Osterreich. it. Osterreich. Yeah, it is, it is highly unlikely. Osterreich. Um, Dave, obviously, Neil mentioned there the 3D printing process that KTM have, and that was one of the big steps that they made compared to a lot of other manufacturers. Straight away, they went all in on this kind of technology and they they do this across the board whether it's with bikes for the wind tunnel they've even got you know 100% replicas of the riders in their tuck positions and you can see the differences between even the leathers and everything on on those models they don't leave a stone unturned KTM and obviously enough when you're up against Yamaha when you're up against Ducati when you're up against you know let's look at Honda over the course of you know Mark Marquez's time with them as opposed to just what it's been over the last couple of years but when you're up against that sort of might it, you do need to make sure that you just do absolutely everything you can. Yeah, I mean, you can't sort of come in. Uh, with, you can't come into MotoGP with half measures if you're serious, uh, uh, which I think is what a lot of them, is the mistake a lot of factories think. You know, that they come in uh, and thinking, well, we'll give it a go and see how far we get. Whereas KTM came in with a clear plan, with a commitment, and with an absolute ton of money. Uh, you know, fifty million euros a year. Um, that was the previous budget. I don't know what the next budget is going to be, but you, that's the kind of commit, commitment you need. You need to be willing to put actually put in. Now, obviously, it helps that um, uh, the owner of KTM is um, uh, uh, friends with the owner of a large uh, energy drink company. That makes uh, finding large quantities of money a lot easier. Uh, but even then, you still have to dedicate the resources. You have to d- dedicate the d- everything to actually doing this, achieving this. That was a bit of subtle, Dave, as a Monster Energy rider, not mentioning Red Bull as well there. We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we're going to look at Adam's big talking point from the weekend. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, Adam, we said that we were going to listen to to your big talking point of uh, the Austrian Grand Prix. But what was it? (laughs) Quite eloquent intro there, Steve. Thanks. Um, No, I mean, just uh, two bite-sized ones, really, because... Um, you know, there was a lot of talk uh, amongst riders, amongst journalists uh, for the both for both of the Grand Prix races in Spielberg about safety, uh, about, you know, what would happen if the rain came down? Um, would the races be run on Monday? Um, it just seemed when people weren't talking about Maverick Vinales and, and the latest meltdown, there was some kind of uh, there needed to be some kind of controversy or, or you know, talking point or whatever speculation. And in the end, there wasn't really anything. I mean, we didn't have any red flags. Uh, you know, there were no um, crashes to give riders or people or viewers or spectators nightmares. Um, you know, it was great to see the, the grandstand so full uh, for the second Sunday. And, you know, there was overall no huge moments of drama, I would say. Um, of course, that doesn't detract from the fact that Red Bull Ring is still a circuit that needs some revisions, even though, in my personal opinion, slotting a chicane into turn two um, and just butchering it, you know, is a, a bit of a crime. I mean, it's such a wonderful piece of racetrack. And, you know, I do sympathize with the riders when they have to face that kind of challenge. But then I also think, you know, they have to be accountable for their actions. Um, if you're going to take wild risks breaking into any corner, then, you know, there are going to be repercussions. So there's that. And then I think the other thing is just how the MotoGP Championship is shaping up now. I mean, there's seven rounds to go. Uh, Quattararo had a pretty good, I mean, that's uh, probably understating at time in Austria. Uh, and to be 47 points ahead, uh, you know, with seven rounds remaining and going to places like Silverstone next, uh, which I think could be very prosperous for him. Um, you know, it's not a surprise to hear people like Juan Mir, uh, who fired his World Championship campaign into action uh, in Austria last year, saying things like he believes Fabio is now going to have the biggest pressure he's had on his shoulders, not least because of the the fact that he might have an empty garage next to him for the next couple of rounds, but also the fact that the the possibility of the championship is getting that much closer. 
So Mia is trying a little bit of gamesmanship or mind games. Um, and Quattararo, from what we've seen, is the polar opposite from the drama queen that was, uh, you know, sort of uh, mentally spilling his guts, you know, last year. Uh, so it's, uh, I think, you know, the next race or two is going to be crucial. Um, Fabio really cannot afford to put a foot wrong uh, just to give any of his rivals the impetus. And, you know, Mir and Bagnaia tied on points. So uh, I, I, I don't expect Peko to be quite as um, sharp in the game as Mia. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be good to watch. Uh, Adam, you said that uh, there wasn't a red flag, but we did have at least two and possibly three races um, uh, at the Red Bull Ring because, first of all, there was that sort of fantastically tense dry race where you had Pekka Benyaya, Mark Marquez, Fabio Quartararo all sizing each other up, waiting for the end. Then you got there, there was like a, a midsection, if you like, a three or four laps where it was start where the rain was just starting and it was all bunching up together and you started seeing some properly wild overtakes um, as people people found a little bit more grip or suddenly a lot less grip. Uh, and then you have the madness of the last race. So we, I mean, we, we still haven't had a single race at the, um, at the Red Bull ring. It's just that this, this one wasn't actually interrupted by any red flags. But I, you're right, Dave. I think, you know, people were, uh, oh, satisfied is the wrong word, but the first race, you know, to see Danny Pedrosa's, um, KTM turn into an inferno, um, you know, at turn three of all places provided people with the, uh, you know, the, the necessary or you know we've got to get away from the red bull ring it's not appropriate it's not suitable for bikes um and it was nice just to see a grand prix that also like you say had such a shifting landscape and there was no major uh wobbles i think the the difference or the the reason why we didn't see any red flags and it wasn't uh, it wasn't as dangerous is uh we had sort of the right amount of rain i think but also um at that stage in the race everything is so uh, split up uh, everything is so sort of like spread out that the uh, that the amount of risk is much much less if you have that amount of rain right at the start when you've got 20 well i think there was 20 21 22 riders uh, no 20 riders on the grid or 22 riders on the grid then it's very different all of them trying to charge into the same corner with a really um with a lot of water on the track would have been would have been very dangerous um it's just the nature of the track that it is you know really hard braking zones uh, that that's always going to, uh, to to pose a risk i think um but yeah when it's spread out there's less risk and it becomes a it becomes very manageable and, and that, well actually another curious moment dave i thought from the race was the fact that it was a flag to flag but when the rain was really coming down you saw that front running group some of them put their arms up as if to say you know stop the race um you know it was uh quite a bizarre scene really it was like no lads i, I thought that was just mark trying to stretch out his shoulder to be honest <laughs> it was just, i mean it, it, it's always worth a try isn't it do you know what i mean and the other thing is i think a lot of them are so it's still totally ingrained um and you never really know why they're putting their hands up. Uh, you know, they might be sort of apologising or they might be doing all sorts of things. But And, and also, it's always, always worth a try. They will always try, stick their hands up, um, thinking, I, I need to go back and see who put his hand, who, who put their, their hand up. It was Mir and Quateraro from memory. Right. Yeah, but was it Mir or was it Quateraro first? Because if it was Quateraro, at that point, I think he might have been like fourth. And so um, if it had been red flagged, then he would have been third, so it would have been an extra uh, an extra place. Yeah, well, it was actually it was actually Mir, I think, in his debrief, who said, um, you know, that he pulled into the pits because the others did. I mean, he admitted that the championship was on his mind, and you know, thought, right, okay, they're going in, I better go in. But you know, if he had taken the gamble and stayed out, I mean, it could have been the end of his championship, or it could have been like twenty five points. I think that's where, for me, it kind of brings into my big talk point of the weekend, and that was the fact that your championships are always won by the days when you can give up the most points. And I thought Quattro this weekend was really impressive. He managed to, like you said, add, keep a cool head, whereas that hadn't been the case in the past for Fabio. And he was able to keep himself out of trouble, make sure he was able to score as many points as possible, didn't give up too much ground. To, to any of his rivals and uh, comes away from Austria, you know, tough back-to-back -back weekends where, you know, he's still got a healthy lead in the championship. He's 47 points over Peko now. None of his main rivals took up big chunks out of him over the two rounds. I thought this was a really good weekend for Fabio, obviously. And I think especially when you look at, like you mentioned earlier, Ad, the tracks coming up, whether it's the Silverstones or Aragon, places like that where you expect the Yamaha to be very strong. 
this is going to be the weekend where we could look back in a few months time and think this is where the championship was won that's right Steve and if you think about Fabio's bad days then you know in Catalonia he was riding around like you know Barry Sheen he just needed a cigarette out of his helmet really to complete the look and then you know as I said on the note show that you know one of the biggest chokes I think we've seen in, in recent MotoGP history going from first to 13th in, in Jerez uh, you know th- those are two races and incidents um, you know, not to mention, I think his third bout of arm pump surgery in the last three years that would seriously derail somebody mentally or at least, you know, get them uh, ruined for the better part of a season or half a season. So the fact that he's come back from that is is really uh, positive for him. Is arm pump a choke? I mean, is suffering arm pump a choke? Yeah, but we didn't know it was arm pump at the time, did we? It was just, you know, he just faded back. If you went for an operation afterwards, I would say that that's kind of confirmation it was on pump. Yeah, but at the time, in the, you know, uh, in the race, it was like, well, why, why is Fabio suddenly going backwards and backwards and backwards? Because he had on pump. Yeah, but then it was saying <laughs> it was perceived. It was perceived as a, as a joke. Well, I tell you what, let's let's look at Fabio though as a whole because Austria we saw that he actually managed to extend his championship lead by 13 points Dave obviously coming to a round like this we expected that Fabio might be able to make something happen but you know if he was able to come away with two top fives we would have thought oh he's done really well this was expected to be a big track for Ducati obviously they've had so much success there in the past and this was a a couple of rounds where Johan Zarco needed to make up ground in the championship instead we saw some of the frailties come through from Zarco again. We saw that Jorge Martin was the faster Pramac rider. We saw Peko able to come away with the podium this weekend. And this was another time where maybe we saw that Zarco, as good as he's been, until he wins a Premier Class Grand Prix, he's not a Grand Prix winner in that class. And this was where, again, we just saw those shortcomings. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean Zarco had a very poor weekend. And what's interesting... Or I mean, we're, let's say we get to the end of the, cha- the, the the end of the season and Fabio Quartararo actually wins a championship. All we're going to do is look back and see how many people finished ahead of him in the races where he did, which he didn't win. Uh, and it's always different people. We were we came into Austria and the big talking point was okay, right? So how many points is Fabio going to lose in the championship, and will he be in a position uh, to lead the championship when he uh, uh, when he leaves here? And he comes away and he's extended his point because different people kept on kept on finishing ahead of him, um, and that's how he's been uh, how he's managed to control the championship. And really, he's having he's being helped by his rivals um, in winning uh, to, to win the championship because they're all taking points off of each other. Yeah, I mean, 34 points he came to Austria uh, with in hand over Zarco and he leaves with 47 points. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable uh, haul um, considering he was just at his and Yamaha's worst track. Yeah, over, over Zarco. I mean, like he came, you know, what was it, 34 points to Zarco. He leaves 47 points ahead of Banyaya and Mir. So th- that's that's the whole thing. You know, that, that that's the whole story right there. It's always someone else. But I think we have to mention that it wasn't just Fabio going around and picking up the safest possible result. I mean, he was putting it really on the line in both races in Austria. I mean, I was really impressed by his two-in-one move on Mira Marquez in the first race at the Styrian Grand Prix before the red flag. And he was just so aggressive in um, in the second race. He was riding with so much confidence. He nearly took himself out um, trying to pass uh, Jorge Martin. I think it was on the first lap at turn six. But straight back there and there was a point where he got shuffled back behind four Ducatis. He was behind Miller and he just managed to make really short work of Miller, Martin, Zarco and then Peko to get right up to the front and there were some times where he was making even Marquez look uh, second best on the brakes. He was just uh, he was just sensationally put absolutely everything into it and I think when the, the rain came that was the moment where he said okay I'm going to maybe not take as many risks understandably so um, but I think what we saw from Fabio was just um, fantastic ability to um, negate some of Yamaha's major um, weak points and also the kind of bravery and aggression that he was showing in conditions that in the past it just wasn't great. I mean, Le Mans we saw make huge steps forward in, in kind of iffy conditions when the rain started falling. Same again here. Okay, he only finished seventh, but still there was plenty to admire from him whenever they were out there and the rain was falling. On a, we've talked a lot about where the Yamaha has improved and uh, Quattararo has said, you know, like acceleration is where it's done. And the, the improvement in the acceleration has been important um, because it means, you know, they're getting out the corner faster and that means 
the Ducatis basically have less time to catch them, and that's been a big difference. But the really big difference to me, and I really noticed it this weekend, is how good that Yamaha is in the hands of Fabio Quartararo on the brakes. He is so good at getting that bike stopped. He was easily, uh, you know, just slicing up the Ducatis, and he seems to be using the rear of the bike to help uh, to to help slow it up, and that's what's making all the difference. Uh, you know, he was, he did, as you said, Neil, he was making Mark Marquez look um, uh, look mortal on the brakes. Uh, brakes. He was matching Marquez. Uh, he was easily outbreaking the uh, the Ducatis. It, it, it's just been really, really impressive. And I don't know what they've done to to uh, to the bike to do that. Um, but clearly, that bike is really, really good on the brakes now. I do wonder when Fabio is going to start riding for the championship, though. I mean, he did say in his debrief on Sunday that he's going on the cliched race by race basis and it's working out for him. Like Neil says, you know, having that attacking style, um, you know, at a, a non Yamaha track was obviously paying off. I do wonder if uh, what's going to happen if he does start to get a bit more conservative, a bit more cautious. Um, but my question for you, Steve, because you kind of brought it up. I mean, do you reckon Fabio will be a good world champion for MotoGP? I mean, considering all everything that's going on with Yamaha the last year or, or like two to three years, I mean, they haven't won a championship since Lorenzo in 15, I think, uh, if my memory serves. So it's been quite some time for, for you know, the Awata group. Um, do you think, you know, he would be a, a decent, decent enough uh, number one? I think Fabio would be a great world champion because on the bike... He's always been sensational. Obviously, since he stepped up to the Premier class, he surprised everyone, shocked everyone, really, with how well he adapted to that bike. But we saw him whenever he was in CEV. We saw him when he was at the start of his Moto3 career, the talent, just how special he was. And then he lost his way a little bit. He's found it over the last few years. I think if he was to win the championship, it would be confirmation of the talent that everyone thought he had whenever he first came on the scene. I remember we were in Qatar in 2015, Dave, and that was his Grand Prix debut. And we saw that he was out there lapping on his own. And suddenly throughout the weekend, you had it where people were latching onto the back of him. He was a rookie in the class and people knew straight away he's the man to follow. And I thought that obviously in those early races, that's where he really made himself stand out. Then he lost his way, changed bikes, changed manufacturers, did lots of things. And it looked like he could have been one of those talents that wasn't going to fulfill his potential. And instead, once he went to the Yamaha, suddenly it all really came good for him. I think he'd be a great world champion. Uh, Adam, what do you mean by will he be a good world champion? I mean, what, what, uh, uh, other than scoring more points than your rivals, what is the difference between? I mean, somebody that em embodies, you know, what you perceive MotoGP to be. So for me, it's, it's something spectacular, flamboyant, engaging, uh, fascinating. You know, I would expect the best in the world to be there as well. I mean, I would be, if you compare, say, I don't want to be too harsh, but Fabio Quattararo or Mark Marquez, I mean, you look at the way Marquez rides a motorcycle and you think that is how someone who's peerless in their discipline should be. But then, you know, somebody like Alex Rins, I would say, you know, excuse me, but you're, you're boring the tits off me, um, even though, you know, your riding style is applaudable. The, the world chap, the the world championship is decided by the person who scores the more points, not by who's got the, so you know, the, the most, the most so exciting boring. hairdo or the flashiest <laughs> gear. That that's that's not a question Ad was asking though, and and I can I can understand Ad's question because the thing with it is, you do need your top riders, your top footballers, your top basketball players, whatever it is, you need them to grab your attention, and when Fabio's riding around Catalonia, thrown out his chest protector riding bare-chested, staying on it, and still lapping fast, I think, yeah, you've got to look at it and say, that's a guy that, that's willing to put it all on the line. Obviously, at the time, we're all also thinking he should be taken off the track because he's clearly a risk to himself. But that's going to be the defining image of his, if he does win the championship, of his title-winning season. I mean, you mentioned Marquez there and how spectacular he is to watch on the bike. I... I advise you to rewatch the Austrian Grand Prix from Sunday and uh, what Fabio was doing on the Yamaha around Spielberg. I mean, that was big, big, big balls to do that. Um, yeah, I thought uh, I thought Fabio, and I think he's he's been he's been the class act all year. Um, I think he's quite a he's an articulate guy. He's clearly smart. He thinks about things even during his meltdown last year. His comments I thought were always quite intelligent. He knew what was going wrong. He knew what he was doing wrong and he admitted to it. You know, he was he was talking about it all being a learning process. Um and maybe he doesn't have the personality of a Rossi, but yeah, I think I think Fabio's a a fine uh, representative of our sport.
Yeah, I think he's he's fine. Yeah, sorry, he's fine. He's young. Um, he's stylish. He's exciting to watch. Um, I mean, his fashion taste is questionable best. So you know, if we're going to talk hairstyle and clothes, you know, then you know, well, we're certainly nobody to comment on this podcast. Neither of us. But you know, I think he'd be a fine ambassador for um, <clears throat> the bravery and the skill, and and you know, like um, you know, Tardoxy mentioned earlier, the cojones needed to to succeed in MotoGP. Not just points, Dave. It's not just points. Style, style points out. That's what wins the championship in your eyes. I've got a question for you, actually, then, Ad, right? Obviously, Fabio, his nickname is El Diablo. What do you think of that nickname? Because the question that came in from Papa Pepe on our patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast page was, do you think Bradical will catch on as a nickname? So I'm going to just bring that on a step and just say, is Bradical a really shit nickname? And is it as bad as the Martinator? Bradical is, abs- is abysmal. The Martinator is terrible. The Diablo is marginally better, but let's be honest. I mean, what racer has had a decent nickname? And is it even necessary in the first place? I would just like to say that you need to get your lawyers on the case, Ad, because uh, the Bradical is clearly impinging on our nickname for you, which is Adical. Sounds like a medicine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my indigestion's playing up. Pass me some Adical. Uh, uh, nicknames I, when I started when I first started writing about MotoGP I used to use the nicknames a lot but now um, I've given up because they are I mean yeah they are tried yes exactly I mean once you start using them if you write the doctor 20 times in a um, uh, in an article you start thinking wait is this the BMJ or what it's just it's silly and and Bradical is um Lacking in imagination, yeah, it's lacking in imagination. At least Martinator is slightly more imagination. Uh, uh, no, it's not, David. Sure. But it, not any better. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying it's marginally more. Uh, imag- I mean, like I would, um, uh, I would like them to have really imaginative ones, like um, I don't know, Moto Matters, or uh, I, I don't know something. You know, the the, uh, the 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 Fairy Queen of the Spielberg Ring, or something like that. Just anything, you know, just. Uh, I think uh, the adjective you're actually looking for rhymes with trite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, let's move it on. Dave, what was your big talking point from the weekend? Uh, My big talking point was just how good Mark Marquez was. Well, two two things about Mark Marquez. One thing I noticed was, for a start, he was back uh, to his old form, despite the fact he had to have an injection, he was suffering pain in his uh, in his shoulder, uh, but he was still back to close to his old form. He's found a way. He can't ride the way that he used to um, because of the weakness and, and 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 pain in his shoulder, but he can still ride really really fast. Uh, he was uh, sitting there stalking Banyaya. Um, there was the three of them uh, together, and you knew that it was going to come down, or if it had stayed dry. The race was going to come down to uh, a, a battle of wits and bravery on the last lap. It would have been a fantastic, um, uh, yeah, it would have been a fantastic last lap. But this is exactly the kind of Mark Marquez we used to see pre two thousand and nineteen. It, like I say, it is different because he's not um, he's having to ride around his shoulder. But the, the I suppose the, the you know the genius of Mark Marquez is he's found a way to ride around it. He can always invent a new way of doing things. Um, and the other thing which I found peculiar is that it was Mark Marquez who's, when it started raining, he said, I wanted to be in the lead um, to make the decision about when to come in. He made the decision and he came in, the rest followed him. That's not Mark Marquez. I mean, Mark Marquez is the guy who uh, in Bruneau 2015, I think, uh, went in to swap to Slicks. Uh, on the second lap, uh, on a completely wet track, and ended up completely destroying the 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 the, the, the field. He, in sketchy conditions, he is unbelievably better than anyone else on slicks. Um, you know, he would the, the kind of thing that Brad Binder showed. He could do he would do that all day every day, and yet he was afraid to do it. He didn't. Uh, he, he didn't do it. He does that mean he can't do it? Is this a uh, does he lack the strength to be to, to have that very very fine bike balance? which made all of the difference. Uh, like Argentina 2017, I think, when he was circulating on slicks on a damp track, uh, barging into everyone. Um, but still, he was three seconds a lap every uh, faster than everyone else. Three seconds a lap 
is uh, in the same conditions. It's just insane. It shouldn't be possible. Um, so I, I, it's peculiar. It's genuinely peculiar that he chose to go in first. Uh, that's not like him at all. I think it just shows that when you are coming back from an injury that Marquez has come back from, that edge that makes you just untouchable in those kind of conditions, that confidence that you have, um, that unwillingness to really push and risk everything and not worry about the consequences. Just if that edge is dimmed ever so slightly, then it can re it can result in this, that snap decision that you make not being the correct one. And it was it was a crazy run that he was on of, of flag-to-flag races from 2014 all the way through to the, the ones that we had prior to this season. And we've had two flag-to-flags this year, and both times he's been caught out by the conditions. Well, yeah, caught out, yeah, exactly. Um, hasn't quite got it right. Hasn't maybe made the right decision on, on Sunday. Um, and, yeah, it just shows that uh, how how your racing instincts can just be dulled ever so slightly by uh, a kind of momentous injury that he suffered. I'm not sure it's his instincts. Like I say, I think it's um, just that uh, he still has the right instincts. It's just that he knows now that he doesn't quite have the control that he needs to be, to be able to manage it. And so he's having to reinvent himself. He's having to try to find another way. And the way that he did it was by going in early and changing to wet. Was it um, also, Dave, and Bruno 2019, where he made pole position by splashing through the puddles on slicks? I mean, that was a pretty spectacular effort as well in qualifying. I mean, that was the, the typical kind of Marquez that just destroyed everybody that season. Um, we didn't really have that in evidence. Uh, but it's curious, you know, what Honda are also doing on the race bike. I mean, Mark wasn't didn't give uh, much in the way of... Uh, of revelation um, when it comes to details of what, what the work that was going on when he described that they were changing some things and those things might be better than the things they tried before and they're still going to evaluate those things and they might use those things in the future. Oh, don't forget the other things. He also had some other things. Is that the first thing or the second thing, though? No, oh, no, no. The, this, was, this was different things. This was other things. Okay. Well, we've still got plenty of things to talk about on the podcast as well as we wrap up from the Red Bull Ring. So when we come back after the break, we're going to look at Maverick Vinales and his future as well. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass Podcast, and we're going to look now at Maverick Vinales and one of the big talking points from the weekend, because obviously, David, we saw that Vinales suspended by Yamaha. We knew this in advance of the weekend. We were talking about it during the weekend on our patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast, Paddock Notes Shows. And uh, obviously for Vinales, this was a massive weekend. This is where he got a huge wrap across the knuckles from Yamaha. And this is where it was finally confirmed what he's going to do next year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it wasn't confirmed until uh, Monday. Obviously, those these are Monday press releases are a thing. Um, uh, missing the race. Also, the fact that they sent his team home, you know, there was an empty garage there. Uh, uh, and the fact that he was turning up in his in his Yamaha gear, he has to. It says in his contract that if he's when he's at the track, he has to be wearing Yamaha team gear. Um, I think that was also important. And the apologies which he made to um, the, the, the to the team and to Yamaha uh, on TV again that was a significant step. Um, the relationship has been deteriorating for ages. We know that. I mean, the, the fact that he was he wins the first race and then starts to complain and then has his crew chief changed for him uh, after changing his crew chief himself sort of two, was it two or three years ago? Two years ago, I think. Um, and he keeps talking about a lack of trust. And then we have the, the whole drama at, uh, at Assen where he's talking about a lack of trust and that he's decided to get out of his contract a year early. It was just... Um, it was inevitable. Yeah, that inevitability, really, we've seen it come through over the course of the last few rounds, Dave, like you said. But it was still it was still shocking to see him suspended. There's no two ways about that. Whenever that email came in with the press release, I think there was no one in the paddock that looked at that and thought, oh, yeah, I saw that coming. 
Yeah, Steve. And I think also, uh, you know, he seemed to seems to be judged on that small video clip where he's coming into the into the pit lane and just like revving the Yamaha. I mean, he's not doing a John Kaczynski and stamping through the gearbox and utterly blowing up the bike. I mean, uh, I think it was Matt Oxley that blogged, uh, you know, that he his cr- maybe the punishment didn't fit the crime so much. Um, and, and it's true what Dave says, relations have been deteriorating. So maybe this was just a snapping point. But um, it would be curious to know if, um, you know, Maverick was doing other stuff on the M1 during the race that was, you know, let's face it, destroying the better part of a multi-million dollar piece of equipment. Um, you know, if that is the case, then Yamaha are well within their rights to say you're acting unprofessionally. Uh, we don't want you riding our motorcycle again. I mean, as we talked about, uh, you know, on the on the previous podcast, uh, the start of the previous race with Maverick and, and everything that happened during that Grand Prix was um, a bit of a comedy of errors. And, you know, it just, his season seems to fluctuate from being last in Germany to finish on the podium in Assen and fresh talk and speculation, his behavior, his, con- his conduct, his demeanor. Uh, you know, it's just it's, it's changing from week to week. And then um, last, last weekend, he, as you mentioned, he was trackside. Uh, and when he finally did say something, it was to Sky Italia, uh, the Italian TV broadcaster. I mean, maybe we're reading too much into it. They may simply have been the first people to ask to have a reaction from Maverick. But the fact that he spoke to them first was maybe a small clue that, you know, the, the Aprilia press release was about to drop. But uh, it, it's, it's a fine mess. It really is. Neil, obviously, we've talked about it on the pod at times over the last few rounds, but when Vinales said in Germany that during the end of that race that he was just out there testing the bike or whatever, he was trying to make adjustments to his riding style, trying to figure things out. I remember the time you said you're a factory Grand Prix rider in a Grand Prix and you're just throwing in the towel. That was probably had to be the beginning of the end. Yeah, looking back, that was the beginning of the end for sure. Um you know, it was around then that Maverick's dad came on the scene again. Um, and like, I don't know Maverick's dad. I don't think any of us do. But if we look at how Maverick's season has imploded completely since his dad was by his side, I mean, it's, it's quite ridiculous. I mean, he's had two last places in races. He's finished second and one. He's decided to quit the Yamaha team at the end of 2021, uh, ending his contract a year early. And he's got suspended by Yamaha. I mean, just on that basis alone, and then add into the fact that Maverick's dad was kind of in his ear during the whole Sepang 2012 debacle, um, then you're inclined to believe that uh, he might not be the most level-headed influence on the guy who, let's face it, um, has some issues controlling his uh, temperament um, in racing situations. Um, so, yeah, and, and you know, there were some things being released over the weekend. There was a story in Spanish newspaper El Periodico on Saturday. Um, they had obviously spoken to, I'm guessing, someone from Yamaha. Apparently, Vinales' dad, according to El Periodico, confronted Lynn Jarvis after the Styrian Grand Prix and basically accused Lynn of ruining uh, ruining my son's career, I think, was uh, was the quote that uh, Angel directed at Jarvis, um, if that report is to be believed. So, you know, reading between the lines, it's not just that Maverick did what he did during the Styrian Grand Prix. It's also that his environment had maybe turned completely toxic um, towards Yamaha. And Yamaha were just like, OK, you know what? Enough. If, if you're constantly going to blame us and the team, when you're not going out there and, and giving your all, then, then what's the point in this? But I would also just like to say that I kind of feel really sorry for Maverick because it's, I know that he hasn't conducted himself brilliantly this year and I've probably been quite, quite critical of Maverick as well. Um, but it's, it's clearly, he, he's a guy that's had a, a tough life, a tough upbringing and doesn't quite know how to communicate his feelings that well. And I think when you add in a sort of temperamental factor like his dad to the mix, you know, it's, it's easier said than done saying, oh, he shouldn't be there, but it's his father. So how is, uh, that's not an easy thing to say to your dad, just, you know, that he should he should get off the scene. Um, and uh, I'm sort of inclined to just think that he's, you know, having a difficult time of it at the moment. It's not, it's obviously a massive struggle for him to, to see the season going the way it has been, to see that he has basically been cast as, well, in Yamaha, within Yamaha, he is not the, the, the kind of the lead rider, new guy to the team has come and taken basically the number one mantle and he doesn't really know how to deal with it and it's um, I mean it's just tough to watch it's just a, it's a great shame um, a, a guy with this talent surely he deserves criticism though Neil because it's all well and good you know 
we've seen it all the way through the last two years, basically, where mental health is a massive talking point within all sports. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to separate the professional from the personal side. And Maverick Vinales has paid an awful lot of money to do a good job. And like like we said, he threw in the towel. He deserves criticism for that and shouldn't be given a pass on that basis just because oh, he's had a tough time as a, as a kid, his dad's on the scene, this, that and the other. It's up to him to control those elements as well once he's at the racetrack. It's absolutely what you say is, is 100% true, Steve. He does deserve criticism. Um, he's an adult and, you know, he should be able to control these kind of factors within his life. But I don't think that uh, exempts him from no sympathy whatsoever. Um, and I think just knowing or having dealt with Maverick like we all have in the in the past couple of years, you know that he just sometimes can maybe seem like um, quite a, yeah, just a little bit sad sometimes, you know, um, and someone that struggles to deal with the kind of the pressures and the the disappointments that um, being a top-class athlete can, can often throw at you. Yeah, he has always needed that arm around the shoulder, the team to really make him feel super wanted. And we saw that when he was at Suzuki. We saw that at different times earlier in his career. Obviously, when you're at Yamaha and you've got Fabio Quattararo leading the championship, it doesn't really matter too much what's happening on the second bike. And talent trumps all. And when you're the most talented rider, the fastest rider, the best chance a manufacturer has of winning, they'll forgive an awful lot of your shortcomings. If you're being outperformed by an, another rider on the same bike, they're not forgiven. And that's, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world and Grand Prix level. To come back to Maverick's um, sort of childhood, and, and this is something which I think uh, gets overlooked a lot because there are, there's a whole group of these riders, uh, I think we've talked about it before, uh, that they basically don't have a childhood. They are, the, 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 there's the joke about a motocross dad, but a motocross dad is actually just basically child abuse. They are um, forcing, they're, they're, stealing, they're stealing the childhood away from their children because they are of their own ambitions. They put so much pressure on kids who are very, very young. Uh, they warp their sensibilities. They don't allow them to grow up into human beings. Um, and so it's obvious that you then end up with these weird meltdowns when you put so much pressure on a kid uh, that they just they have no real sense of perspective. It, it becomes very, very difficult uh, for them to manage. And you see, you know, th there's a different way to do it because if you look at Valentino Rossi or Mark Marquez, they've both grown up in warm, friendly, loving environments. Jean Mir is the same. And they're still just incredibly fast. But, um, uh, yeah, uh, so I, I have some sympathy with Maverick Vinales as well because his character is not all of his doing. Um, and he doesn't have anyone around him to guide him towards a healthier attitude in life. Yeah, but the only reason you have kids is to live your life vicariously through them. Ad, how are your boys getting on with football these days? <laughs> summer break, Steve. It's a summer break. But I mean, Dave's uh, Dave's um, point there about the motocross dad is, you know, the extreme version. I mean, there's plenty of motocrossers I know or I've interviewed where, you know, they felt empowered by their parents and they give them full credit for being able to arrive because if a kid and again, speaking from personal experience, if a kid, an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year old looks at you and says, that's what I want to do, or that's really what I want to do, I want to do nothing else today, then, you know, you're being a good parent by taking them to training or giving them extra practice or encouraging them. Um, you know, of course, I think you need to be level-headed enough to realize when your kid is uh, lacking other areas, um, you know, maybe missing some education or whatever else. I mean, we're getting quite deep into, you know, the, I mean, we don't really know Maverick's full background when it comes to his interaction with his family and whether he's actually, he actually rebelled at one point against racing. But um, I agree, you know, coming back to what Neil mentioned earlier, um, there were times when Maverick just seemed kind of depressed by it all. I mean, let's not forget, here's a man who signed a two-year deal twice with Yamaha um, and if he had any kind of doubts or ill feeling about that unless he was just chasing the check then you know he he probably would have jumped out of there earlier uh, you know he obviously believes in his talent enough so it's it was it's, it's, it's it, like I say it's just reached a point it's reached them um, a boiling point and you know I'm we can talk about it on the on the extra show for, for our patronists but I think it's um 
you know, it's curious to see what he'll be just, able to do. Just to clarify ability. what I mean by motocross dad, I don't mean, you know, the, the normal one, uh, encouraging it. I mean, it's literally the, the, the kind of, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, because I, I remember going to a junior motocross in, uh, in, uh, in, you know, local to me in Holland um, well, a couple of years ago, and there was some poor kid with his head hanging down and his dad shouting at him, uh, telling him what he was doing wrong and uh, how it was all terrible. That is appalling parenting. That is just terrible parenting. You know, it's up to your kid to do it. You have to support them. But as a far as a parent, you have to understand. Uh, you know, encourage them and pull them through difficult times as well. Point out their mistakes, but also listen to them. See, it has to be fun. If it's not fun, why are you doing it? And there was a good question in the uh, pre-event press conference on Thursday uh, when I think it was maybe Fabio and Mark were asked about their parents' influence. Obviously, Mark's dad, uh, Julia, is uh, a mainstay in the Repsol Honda garage. But Mark was quite interested in just saying that, yeah, you know what, you have to, he's obviously there for my support, but there have to be limitations with what he can get involved in. And Mark, being a very clear-headed person that he is, had explained that there were sort of parameters with what his dad could comment on or ask about. And that was, you're not allowed to ask about or talk about bike setup or tires or complain about this or that. You're just allowed to say, are you okay? How's it going? Ask general sort of questions to be there for emotional support, not to get involved in the intricacies of something that he doesn't quite understand. And it does seem at the moment that Maverick's dad is getting involved in those kind of intricacies and more. I remember chatting to Augusto Fernandez's dad about it actually at one stage and uh, Augusto Sr. I think is the the manager of Augusto as well and uh, he said that at one point he had to understand that you know 90% of the time you're there to be the rider's dad you're there to offer them that emotional support and then there's 10% of the time where you're there to be their employee and you've got to understand where the line is and not overstep it and I think it's always interesting to see how that interaction takes place, like Dave said earlier on, between you know a father and a son, and sometimes it's pushing them far too much to one extreme, and then other times it's where you need to take that step back. And Dave, we we talked to Johnny Ray about it at the the Dutch Round the World SBK, where he was talking in terms of when he was a kid to get him off the track was the challenge, and now whenever he's got his sons riding, it's almost like when they say I've had enough for today, you just have to say okay, well that's enough. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the point. You have to listen to your kids. You, you know, you, you, you like. I suppose to an extent, it's easier for Johnny Ray because you know he's a multiple champion. He doesn't need to live vicariously through his kids because he's achieved too much, so much. But um, there are uh, other extremely successful uh, uh, race of parents uh, who are a lot less forgiving and not as good at, uh, at managing that. So it, it it's just really variable from rider to rider, from person to yeah, person. We're we're going to talk a little bit more about Maverick on this week's Paddock Extra show on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. So give that a look if uh, you want to see what everyone has to say about the move to Aprilia. We're going to move on, though, just to finish up this week's show, looking back at the Red Bull ring by moving on to our winners and losers from the weekend. So, Neil, who was your big winner from the Austrian Grand Prix? Um, I think I have to go with uh, Fabio Quattararo just because um, it was a race in which he performed brilliantly. Seventh place didn't quite reflect just how, how strong he was in that race. Um, but you look at his points, Hall, 47 points, it, he now has in hand. He was 34. And yeah, he's going to um, the UK, to Silverstone, and then to Misano, two tracks that uh, he should really, really be strong at. Um, so if he scores back-to-back wins there, you would have to say he's got one hand on the title. So yeah, things looking really good for him. What about you, Ad? Technically, not really a winner from the Grand Prix because by that time on Monday, most people had left the circuit. But I will say a prettier uh, because they now have the leading Grand Prix winning championship potential rider in their midst. Um, Andrea Nianoni, as we all know, is a bit of a head case. Uh, so he brought, of course, past glory uh, into the team. But I think... Uh, so Maverick Vinales is an upgrade then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mavericks have much, much settled, uh, you know, psychological case. But... Um, no, I think you know they 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 now have a team where you think right. Uh, it's not a case of Alessio Spargaro having to carry the burden of development as well as results um, when his CV clearly doesn't you know stack up one side of that argument. Um, so yeah, I think Aprilia, uh, you know, especially with Sabadori being absent, um, you know, through that accident uh, was was a bit of a blow for the team. Um, that was big news for them. 
Dave, what about you? Well, I'll let you have Brad Binder, um, uh, Steve. Um, uh, and I think I'll go with uh, Jorge Martin because he comes off pole on a win last week. He gets another pole with an astonishing lap time, just astonishing. Uh, Quattararo as well. I mean, th- those two, th- those two laps for pole were just outstanding. Um, he goes into uh, Jorge Martin, then goes into his uh, second flag to flag race uh, and ends up on the podium. And it was just the way that he handled himself, the way that he handled himself in that race as well um, was just exceptional. It was His decision making was good. I mean, apart from almost killing his mechanic when he when he did the bike swap, that was just about the only, uh, only mistake he made. It, uh, it was genuinely very mature, very impressive. I am interested to see what he does in the rest of the season because uh, I think as we've said before he picked out two races uh, at the beginning of the year uh, Qatar and Spielberg and those were the ones that he was going to target so he's targeted those but where he goes from here uh, that that becomes very very interesting yeah and I think like you said Dave I'll go with with big balls Brad because this was such a great performance by him and certainly going to be one of those races that we remember for a long time obviously not too much point to go into it in too much more detail than what we did earlier on in the show but really impressive from Binder and it's going to be interesting to see how he kicks on from this obviously it's in strange circumstances to pick up the win but let's see how he does it the next few rounds as well but Dave, what about you? Who's your big loser from the weekend then as well? I mean, it has to be Joan Zarco, uh, you know, crashing out in the dry for no apparent reason. He came in second in the championship. We were talking about him as, you know, what can he do? How, how much uh, ground can he gain on Fabio Quartararo before the, uh, you know, in these, in the, well, in these two races and then this race? Uh, and he leaves... A long way around, a long way behind, having lost a lot of ground, um, having inexplicable crashes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we can fairly well, we can certainly start to write off any chance of him winning the championship, barring some extreme circumstances. He should have consolidated his place in the championship, and he he, he absolutely did not. Um, Adam, I have to say, the Petronas team, Steve. Uh, you know they. Two weeks in Austria, they saw their, you know, icon of a rider retire. Cal uh, Crutchlow was obviously trying to acclimatize again to to Grand Prix, and he could even be ejected out of the team onto the factory bike if if Vinales doesn't race, um, you know, next to Quattararo anymore. And then, of course, there was the news about the, you know, the Moto Two and Moto Three sponsorship evaporating, and potentially those teams as well. I'm not sure if it actually if it's been confirmed that they're cutting loose um, on their team in the other classes. Uh, some rumours as well around other, you know, Moto3 teams. It suddenly looked like some of the um, the economic reaches or, you know, restrictions of the pandemic are starting to bite motorsport a little bit. I fear it's something that will probably come more to light in 2022, maybe in 2023. But, um, you know, if that's the, the situation with budgets, and it's, it's quite bizarre with Petronas anyway, because, you, I mean, they're a Fortune 500 company, they're a massive um um, you know, if they're really feeling the punch at the pinch when it comes to to budgets, then it's it's quite surprising. I think Petronas are even committed to supplying the fuel for Moto Two and Moto Three for the next two seasons. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it unfortunately it's just the fragile nature of racing, isn't it? Where you're something that seems so settled and committed, then can do a, a quick uh, U-turn. Yeah, you tend to be successful companies though by not putting bad money after good. And when you look at the results that they've had. It hasn't lived up to the billing that was expected. And I think Petronas as well, obviously, they've put in their investment and they've been very steadfast about what they're willing to invest as a sponsor on the team. And I think that last year, especially, we saw that you know the bonus money that they had to pay for Franco Morbidelli seemed to have a big knock-on effect for an awful lot of the budgets then running through, especially their MotoGP team and, and different elements as well. So there's obviously an awful lot of factors go into it. And now the Moto2 and Moto3 teams, they need to find a new title sponsor, see if that's going to be possible for them. Just quickly, is Morbidelli contracted to Petronas next year, the, the team, or to Yamaha? He's contracted to Petronas at the moment, but uh, Yamaha are obviously trying to put him onto a full factory contract because they want to take that structure away where it was an independent rider that from all the rumors inside the paddock there was big issues where Yamaha were obviously looking at Franco as one of their riders then they had to pay him out of his contract with Petronas to put him onto their factory contract Petronas had to pay a big bonus big bonus money to him last year for winning races for finishing so well in the championship and that's had a big knock-on effect they want to go down the route that we've seen with KTM and have that 
pipeline of talent coming through and that seems to be the way that all the manufacturers are going but Neil what about you who was your big loser from the weekend um, I'd have to say Jack Miller um, just because it was uh, you know like Zarco it was it was a, a weekend where we thought okay you can really capitalize on one of Ducati's favorite uh, tracks and um, yeah, he came away with a crash and an 11th place um, it just was a tough, tough, tough race for Jack. He was saying that um, he had no real rear grip and was struggling um, before the rain arrived and ducked into the pits early, tried to take that gamble, um, but it just seemed that he took that gamble too early um, because it wasn't wet enough, I think, for full wet tyres um, for the first two laps that he was out there. And he wasn't really able to make a big impression on the race after that, um, coming home in 11th place. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty disappointing, you know, and I think Jack's, demeanor and tone um after the race was, was kind of similar to what we saw in Portimao you know back at the start of the season and it's just been a, a season of, of quite pronounced ties for Jack you know winning the two back-to-back races in Jerez and Le Mans and then quite pronounced lows you know it's it's kind of one extreme to the other um I've no doubt that he'll, he'll bounce back and a couple of good circuits coming up for him but um yeah this was this was a, a disappointing fortnight yeah, I think for me, I'm going to go with Aleish as my loser from the weekend because obviously we saw the news then as well that Vinales has signed on. We know that whenever they were teammates at Suzuki that Vinales was the better rider. You'd expect that that's still going to be the case now. And this was an opportunity for Aleish to either finish on the podium or even potentially win the race. And then obviously once it started to rain, lost all feeling and dropped all the way down from being in podium contention to think it was 10th at the flag. And it was one of those opportunities where he could have made a big statement. And they... Uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate for him, but it was also one of those cases where he gave up an awful lot of time in those final couple of laps when other riders didn't give up as much time as him. So for me, it was a missed opportunity for him. Not trying to be too harsh on him, though. It's obviously very tricky conditions. And when you lose that feeling, you lose that feeling. But uh, this was one of those opportunities that you'd imagine he'll feel could have gone a begging for him. But uh, for me, though, I think it was a really successful couple of weeks in Austria and I think it was a couple of weeks where we saw everything that was great about MotoGP and for us on the Paddock Pass podcast we had lots of feedback from listeners be sure to drop us a message at Paddock Pass pod with your feedback or any questions that you have because in the lead up to the next podcast we're going to try and answer quite a few of them before the British Grand Prix at Silverstone so from myself Steve English Adam Neil David big thank you from all of us for listening to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Rental Street and if you want to go to Patreon patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast we'll have some extra content up over the course of the next couple of weeks this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com be so proud of me dave a whole just a slew of rechargeable batteries currently being recharged next to me are they double a or triple a fucking they've, fancy bastard neil yeah f- fancy bastard with your double a batteries i'm fairly sure it would make a certain uh, man that resides in the netherlands rather hard <laughs> <laughs>